One of the things we learned when I was studying martial arts was the ability to take a punch. We would actually line up with each other and punch each other. <laughs> it doesn't sound too smart, does it? But we would learn through different disciplines how to take someone's punch and let the energy dissipate. And You know, it's one thing to have the ability to take a punch physically. It's another thing to have the ability to take a punch emotionally. You know, those times where we experience loss, rejection, disappointment, maybe people talking about us behind our backs. We feel that. We feel it. It comes to us like a punch. It's also possible to have a punch that we feel mentally, the ability to take a mental punch. You know, when we have our mental models of how the world should work, how things line up, and we have expectations based on those mental models, and then those models fail us, and life delivers something else altogether. It's also possible to have that punch be a spiritual one, where we understand something about God. We, we believe we know who God is, and, and we come to depend upon God in certain ways based on our understandings only then our experiences don't line up with what we assumed to have been true. And it comes across like a deep, maybe even hurtful spiritual punch. Well, today we're going to be in Psalm 37. It's part of our Summer in the Psalms sermon series. And it's going to speak to this idea, this idea of being able to withstand, to be able to be in the midst of hard times, of hardships, of, of emotional and mental model and spiritual punches, and to have understanding, to be present. Each time we've had a sermon in this series, we've found that that psalm has had a particular spiritual habit identified in it, and we've taken time to explore what that spiritual habit is. And today's spiritual habit uh, that we will discover is being still, being still. Now, a couple of words about Psalm 37 before we get into our message. This is identified as a Psalm of David, which we've come to learn means it could have come from David. It could have actually been written by him. Or maybe that title, that line, Psalm of David, that maybe that was applied at a later time, and the psalm is then attributed under the umbrella of, da of David. Some describe this very clearly, and we can see why, as a wisdom psalm. In fact, as we read through it, as we explore it, we might find that it feels very much like a, a section out of Proverbs, the way it, it provides wisdom, like this is the wise way to go. Others have seen in this psalm more of a, a psalm of confidence, that it calls us to trust in God, that our confidence is wisely placed in God. One more uh, thing about this uh, psalm that might be helpful is that it's um, a, an acrostic. A, a number of psalms in the, in the Bible, uh, the writers of them, they use the Hebrew alphabet as a way of introducing each stanza. So the first word of each stanza would begin with the next, he, next letter in the he, Hebrew alphabet, and there are 22 letters. Um, and so this passage for us follows that. One of the things to note about an acrostic psalm is that it often doesn't follow like a, a very logical pattern. It's not like there's something at the beginning at the end that uh, begin it and close it and something in the middle that explains it and, 
um, but uh, there's a little bit more freedom in terms of, uh, of just where the author explores. We'll find out that there's a main theme in the midst of all of it, though. So today, here's what we're going to do. We're not going to read the psalm at first. It, um, I, rather, let me just give us some titles that we're going to explore the psalm under. So uh, we're going to talk about righteous, uh, the righteous, the wicked, the Lord. So those three, those three are the three main characters, the only three characters in the psalm, the righteous, the wicked, and the Lord. And then we'll talk about instructions, that God has instructions for the righteous. So with this in mind, let's go ahead and jump into our, our text this morning. So um, the righteous, what do we know about the righteous? Let's, um, let's divide the righteous into two categories, pretty easy to do. There, there are the righteous who have God at the center. So if a person is righteous and they have God at the center, what we see in their life is that they reflect God and they honor God in their choices and their relationships, that we can see God's goodness in them, that, that they exhibit that on, on a daily or near daily basis. We, exhi- we experience the goodness of God in them. Uh, we might think of, um, you might know the name John Wooden, the coach of the UCLA basketball team. Uh, John Wooden, if you don't know the name, that in a period of 12 years as the head coach of the UCLA men's uh, uh, basketball team, that uh, he won 10 national championships, uh, seven, seven of those in a row. He's known for producing his pyramid of success. And so uh, this pyramid of success identifies all the values that he would encourage his players to have. And if they had a wooden center, a John, cent- John Wooden-centered uh, righteousness to them, they would, the teams then would live these values out. And you could experience something of John Wooden by engaging the players on his team. Not that they would just live these out on the court, but they would live these out throughout their, uh, the whole of the week, the whole of uh, those years. Um, in the same way, that's what we see, that God being much more than John Wooden, and that's coming from a Bruin, that uh, um, God reveals his word, and we know something of God in here. God reveals who he is, and so we get to experience God through his word, and to be God-centered is to to live His goodness, as it's described in Scripture, we live His goodness out in this world. So we can compare that to the not God-centered. The basic description of these folks is that they don't reflect or honor God. So when we come to Psalm 37, and we understand it's talking about the righteous, we might automatically expect ourselves to be understood as the righteous, that we just read it because we can know something of the wicked, and the wicked are who stand against us, but we consider ourselves the righteous, and so we can come to the psalm with a relative righteousness. Uh, and it's possible to read it that way, but the true intent of the psalm, it is for those who um, are the righteous of God, that God is at the center of their lives, that their righteousness, their goodness is um, something that reflects and honors God in their lives. So here's what the psalm says with regard to the righteous. In verse 21, uh, uh, the righteous is generous and gives. The righteous is ever lending generously. The righteous utters wisdom and speaks justice. And kind of in a summary way, we read in verse 31, the law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. So the very law of God, 
Much like in a player on John Wooden's team might have that pyramid of success in their heart for the righteous of God, the, the very goodness of God, what God has revealed is in their heart and they go forward in action uh, in alignment with that. Now, it could be that when we hear the word the righteous, we think, well, that's Mr. Goody Two-Shoes. <laughs> like, who wants to be Mr. Goody Two-Shoes in this world? By the way, I looked up the phrase Goody Two-Shoes. It comes from a 1765 children's book. Uh, there was this character in the book. We don't know who the book was written by, but the character is <clears throat> Marjorie Meanwell. And Marjorie Meanwell starts off very poor, and she only has one shoe. And she makes really good choices in her life, and she acts out this good behavior, and someone comes along and gives her a pair of shoes. She becomes known as Goody Two-Shoes, and she grows up and has this wonderful life uh, that she lives out with all kinds of value and character, a way of encouraging children at the time to live into the ideal life of, of that culture. Well, when it comes to being the righteous, it's not just about being goody two-shoes. Because that phrase came on to, to mean something else, that there'd be this excessive focus on goodness. It's not just having an excessive focus on goodness. In the Bible, right, uh, righteous is she who exemplifies the goodness of God. The righteous is the one who exemplifies the goodness of God. Okay, so that's the righteous. Let's go ahead and talk about the wicked. You know, if we are self-righteous, then we might describe the wicked as those who get in our way. Think of driving, right? In fact, literally, they get in our way. And if we have self-righteousness as a driver, like for instance, you're at a stoplight, the stoplight turns green. The person in front of you, yes, trying to be safe, yes, trying to save fuel, then they take like five minutes to get up to speed. And you're just going, please, hurry up. That's self-righteous. Now, if we are America righteous, then we would identify the wicked as those who get in America's way. And by the way, we could do this no matter what our country is. If we were from Iran or if we were from China or we were from the Philippines, whatever it might be, if we take our nation and we're that nation righteous, then then we will just consider the wicked anyone that gets in the way of our nation. Of course, there can be cause righteous. The, those who have a cause that might be like a, um, to end abortion or the environment or education or civil rights, whatever the cause is, if the cause, and they can be great causes, but if that's at the center, then we will identify the wicked as those who stand in opposition to that cause. So in Psalm 37, when we come to the wicked, we find that in the psalm, they are described as those who seemingly prosper even though they do not reflect the goodness of God or honor God in their lives. Those who seemingly prosper even though they don't reflect God or honor Him in their lives. So we see these verses. Verse 12, those who, the, 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 the wicked are those who plot evil against the righteous. It's the wicked is the one who gnashes his teeth uh, at them. Verse 14, the wicked, those who draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and the needy. Here, the, the uh, words being used are less that they're actually fighting them with weapons as they are with their power. 
And so we can even think about it in today's world, that there are, are people who are wealthy and rich, and they're making decisions with their power, but it's being done on the backs of the people who have less power, those who are poor and needy. And our passage calls us out. It says the, the wicked are those who slay those whose way is upright. The wicked are those who borrow but do not pay back. The wicked are those who watch for the righteous and seek to put them to death. And here again, it may not be a physical death, but to bring them to ruin. Now, in the New Testament, Jesus does a, a, a couple of things with regard to the wicked. We find passages where he calls out the Pharisees and, 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 and the people who were expert in the law. And here, these are people under the, the name of God, in the name of the, of the Hebrew religion of the time, these are people in position that other people in the culture would say, well, those are, are, are good followers of God. And Jesus calls them out and says, listen, you're not living according to the goodness of God. He, he shows us that even within people who claim, well, I've got God at the center, that, that there's a way of claiming God to be at the center, and yet our lives are built on something else at the center of our lives. Jesus also tells his followers that, listen, in this world, um, there are people that hate me, and because they hate me, they're going to hate you as you follow me, that there will be wicked in this world. Paul helps with a little bit of nuance he writes to churches. So this is after the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, and Paul is engaging people in churches, and conflict is there. And so there's this time when he writes uh, to the Philippians, and there's a conflict between Yodia and Syntyche. And as he talks about this situation, Paul doesn't call out one as being righteous and the other as being wicked. He just acknowledges that there's conflict, encourages the community to come around them and encourage them. Of course, that's not the only thing Paul provides. Paul provides a different situation at the end of 2 Timothy, something we looked at just a couple of months ago. When he describes Alexander the coppersmith, Paul puts it this way, he did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message get that much more of a sense of sense that now here is someone who's of the wicked. In Psalm 37, the wicked are painted as clear-cut. They're identified. They stand against God's ways. They do not represent the goodness of God. And by the way, we, we know something of a situation where the, the opposition is clear-cut. We may have our favorite teams, and, and we know our favorite team's colors. And when they go out on the field, when they go out on the pitch, they go out on the diamond, we can see the difference. We know our team and the, the team that we'll root for, and we know who the enemy is. Well, in Psalm 37, it's not just the righteous who sees the wicked but it's God as well. Not only do the righteous see the wicked as the opposition, but so also does God. So, the righteous, the wicked, let's talk about the third character, the Lord. We get to know the Lord in our text through the Lord's disposition toward the righteous and the Lord's disposition toward the wicked. Here's what it says. The Lord will give uh, to the righteous the desires of their hearts, 
The Lord will bring forth their righteousness and justice as the noonday. In other words, the Lord will make it shine. It'll be out in the open. It'll be bright and, and prosperous. The Lord upholds the righteous and knows the days of the blameless. God is sovereign. Even though the righteous may experience the wicked, it's God who upholds, and, and God is the one who um, knows the days of the blameless. He will not forsake his saints. Verse 34, he will exalt the righteous to inherit the lands. In the Old Testament, it's the old covenant, the first covenant. And in there, the land was important. It was significant to the relationship the people had with God. And here's the promise of the lands. We know that today, it's not the lands, but it's the kingdom of God, that, that we get to participate in the kingdom of God and live within the kingdom of God even now, uh, even though the kingdom of this world still is here, that, that we're children of the kingdom. Verse 40, he helps the righteous and delivers them, delivering them from the wicked and saving them because they take refuge in him. God helps the righteous. God delivers the righteous. This is who the Lord is. So the Lord's disposition toward the wicked. In verse 13, we find that, that, that the Lord laughs at the wicked for he sees that his day is coming. That's the disposition of God to the wicked. The wicked might think that they have it all worked out, but God just laughs. He knows. He's sovereign over all of it. And we can be so consumed in the moment that we think this is all that the universe has for us at this moment. And yet God is over all things, and He knows that this day, your experience, my experience, is not definitive. It's God's goodness that is definitive. So we can picture it this way. Picture a triangle. In this relationship, we have the righteous and the wicked, and the, the righteous and the wicked, and we can see that there can be conflict between them. That is, the righteous pursue the way of God, as the righteous reflect God's goodness in their life and seek to honor Him, that there are people in this world that will stand against those values, that they don't agree with those values. They don't honor God in their lives. But that's not the definitive relationship. What we just experienced in our text is that the relationship between the Lord and the righteous and the Lord and the wicked are the relationships that will define reality. Those are the important relationships. We may experience conflict in this world. We may have people stand in opposition of God's children in this world. But our experience is defined more by our relationship with the Lord. And, and the reality of the world is defined more by the relationship between the Lord and the, and the wicked and what what God's sovereignty intends than anything that we might experience between each other. What really matters is God's defining relationship with us. All right. So we have the righteous, we have the wicked, we have the Lord. And then we find instructions. In Psalm 37, there are instructions that are given to the righteous. And the, the instructions are these. There's only two, really. They fall under two umbrellas. Uh, the first one is this, fret not. Fret not. Now, the Hebrew word for fret is this word that, that has this connotation. It, it paints a picture of burning. 
it's a kindling. It's, it's being hot. And can you imagine, I'm sure we can all picture it, that something stands in opposition to us, that, that we're getting pushback because of our walk with God, and we begin to burn. Maybe it's not because of our walk with God. We're just experiencing it. And, and somebody stands in opposition, and we feel the heat within us. And so the instruction is, fret not. Be not envious. Verse 4, just the opposite. Delight yourself in the Lord. Don't let this thing define you. Don't let this opposition, the the fact that these people seem like they're winning and, and yet they don't honor God in their lives at all, don't let that burn you up. Instead, delight in God at every given moment. Verse 7, be still before the Lord. Wait patiently Uh, for him. We're going to come back to be still in just a moment. Verse 8, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. And finally in verse 34, wait for the Lord and keep his way. All of that under fret not. The other instruction that is given in this psalm is to trust God. We um, finding this, that this trust God, it, it's a, a way of saying, in other words, uh, you don't have to solve all this. This is not yours to make right. This is, yes, you'll be faithful. Yes, you'll find goodness in God's goodness. And, and yes, you can represent God's goodness in this world, but, but trust God. Don't think you have to solve uh, it by yourself. So verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land, and I love this phrase, befriend faithfulness. Make faithfulness to God your friend. Come up and cozy alongside it. That faithfulness to God is is your uh, constant companion. Verse 5, commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him. Turn away from evil and do good. You know that an acronym, KISS, keep it simple, stupid. The idea of keep it simple, keep it simple. Here's what it is to keep simple. Fret not and trust God. In the midst of a world that has conflict, in the midst of a world that's going to push back on God's goodness, fret not and trust God. It sounds a lot like keep calm and carry on. So I also looked that phrase up. And maybe you already know the story behind keep calm uh, and uh, carry on. Back in 1939, uh, in Britain, there was uh, the Ministry of Information. And it developed a number of these sayings, different kinds of sayings. This is the simplest one. I I didn't even write down the longer ones because they were a little rocky. But this simple one, they even made almost two and a half million posters. In the event that the war would break out, they would put these posters up all over the place. They shelved the whole idea. In fact, that idea of keep calm and carry on did not come back up until in the year 2000, somebody found a copy of one of these posters in a bookstore in Northumberland. And since that time, it's become just known everywhere. So maybe, even though this is such a simple understanding, fret not and trust God, maybe we've done the same thing, though, that we've shelved that idea. We've gotten so used to screwing around and trying to create and be in charge and manage all the conflict. In fact, maybe we've been tempted to go the way of the wicked because it creates less conflict. And so we move away from the goodness of God because we're going to compromise in order to reduce the conflict. 
And this we ought not to shelve. Fret not and trust God. Instead, ours is to live the goodness of God. And as we live that goodness, then we can trust God and not give ourselves to such anxious ways. All right, a sub-idea here under instructions is this instruction to be still, to be still. Now, when it comes to being still, it comes to the spiritual habit of being still, there are two uh, foundational reasons to do so. One is simply for the enjoyment of God, that we would enjoy God, that we would give ourselves the gift of enjoying God. More on that in just a minute. The second one is for the regulation of our hearts and minds, that we would choose to be still before God for the regulation of our hearts and minds, or in other words, that we would learn to trust God and to fret not. Listen, we know. We know in this world conflict is normal. I was reading some stuff on this this past week and came across uh, a writing from a scholar at, the, um, at Utah State who studies conflict and everything, and, and I can't remember her name right now, but she, um, she said, you know, the, one of the big problems we have with conflict in our, our world today is that we see, see conflict as a problem. Uh, conflict is normal. We, we ought to know that we're going to run into conflict in this, in this world. And oftentimes for us, I know for me, that I can, ha- I can respond uh, in a heated, chaotic, unsure, insecure way. Even though it's normal, it can be something that can come along and it can trigger something in us. It can be like a tripwire, and all of a sudden we find ourselves burning and wanting to manage the conflict and be over the top of it. And conflict, it's around us, it's there, it's normal. The other thing for us to hold on to, in the midst of also knowing that conflict is normal, is the goodness of God. The goodness of God. God has shown and displayed His goodness. He has shown it in what He has done for the righteous in sending Jesus Christ, in giving us the Holy Spirit, even in creation, giving us creation. God has shown His goodness. He has taught it to us in Scripture. We know it through the acts He does in our lives. But He also shows us His goodness in what He does in response to the wicked today and in the future. Being still before our God is a proactive behavior and disposition on our part to prepare for inevitable conflict so that we, our hearts and our minds are regulated. There's a peace. We know the good God. In fact, we know the good God so well that we can trust Him to define even the moments of our conflict. And it can take us many years to learn this. It's not something that maybe we're just innately know from the beginning. It can be something that we grow into. But that's what the spiritual habit of being still is all about. We spend time with God in silence, just being quiet. Maybe it's two minutes in the morning. Maybe it's two minutes five times a day, and we just quiet ourselves, still ourselves. Maybe it's 20 minutes. We just quiet ourselves. We, we see ourselves in the presence of God. We claim what God has already communicated, that I am with you. 
that we know that the Father and the Son come and make their home with us, that we have been given the Holy Spirit, in fact, that we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so we sit still, unhurried, not managers of everything, not people who have to work out all things to their own advantage, but we know the one who is good, the one in whom we can trust, the one who says we need not fret. In Richard Foster's book, Celebration of Discipline, he writes on solitude, and solitude, the way he describes it, very much can, we can submit the words of being still in his uh, statements. And so, uh, making this a little bit of a substitution, here's what Foster would say. Being still is not first an act or a non-act, but it's a state of mind. In other words, we may practice stillness before God. We may sit and be quiet and just enjoy the goodness of God. Maybe we do that as a discipline to slow ourselves down. But it's not simply an act or a non-act. It's a state, a state of the heart, of the mind, that, that we can practice stillness even in the midst of everyone else's chaoticness, in the hurriedness of anybody else's day. Therefore, stillness can be maintained at all times. Practice stillness that leads to stillness of mind and of heart throughout the day. All right, so if the, the reason we just explored for being still is the reason why is that we can re regulate our hearts and actions, the other reason would be simply the enjoyment of God. In Psalm 37, there are a number of places where the futures of the righteous and the wicked are talked about. And it goes really well for the righteous. It doesn't go so well for the wicked. There's something about being righteous in a right relationship with God through Jesus Christ that allows us to know that, that there's this future before us. It's a future of enjoying God for all that God is and, and living into that future with Him and living it even today. Westminster's Shorter Catechism says, what's the chief end of humankind? But to know God and to enjoy Him forever. We can have fellowship with Him even now. I love this verse from Isaiah chapter 12. It's verse 2. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. And here's the line. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. It's a quote from Exodus, actually. For the Lord God is my strength and my song. Being still, that we might learn the melody of God, the goodness of God, that it would be the song we sing all day long. Okay, with all of this in our minds, and I know our time is running short, we have the righteous, the law of God is on their hearts. We have the wicked, those who plot evil against the righteous. We have the Lord, he who helps the righteous and delivers them, and who laughs at the wicked, for he sees his day coming. We have this encouragement, be still, for the purpose of regulation, we have the encouragement to be still for the purpose of enjoying God. With all this in mind, let's read our text. Psalm 37. And we'll close our message with this. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. 
Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, attends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the, li- the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked, for the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless. Their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back. But the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now am old. I, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good, so shall you dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever, but the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of his God is in his heart. His steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on what... Uh, you will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless, and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace, but transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is the stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him.